0: So I just wanted to say we're excited to have John Rennie with us today. His second book, All in the Same Boat. Uh, there's a little byline to that. I'll let John go into it. But he's a great friend of the business, client, friend, motivator, and absolutely wants to put you in a position where your work, you, as, as a leader, you do certain things that will really make you a great leader. And and he's he's been through a lot, too, to understand what not-so-great leadership is. And I think from that point of view, he'll motivate you to find, not only find the best place, but encourage you to be the leader that, that's inside of you. John Rennie.
1: Okay. Thanks, John. How's everybody doing today? Well, <laughs> see a
0: lot of worries.
1: Thumbs up. Hey there. So let me put up uh, the presentation that I have for today, and then uh, we'll get started. And I just got to remember how to do that. So <laughs> uh, hold
2: on. Uh, share screen. There we go. We're gonna share our uh, PowerPoint presentation, share. All right, and can everybody see that? Give a thumbs thumbs up. up. All right,
1: great, excellent. So we'll go ahead and get started. so as John mentioned, uh, I am a uh, the co-founder, president, CEO of Peak Demand Incorporated. We're at Wilson, and uh, now I'm a best-selling author of two books. Believe it or not, my second book just hit the bestseller list, which is kind of cool. Uh, I come from an engineering background. I have an uh, engineering degree. Uh, then I also have MBA, manufacturing um, uh, engineering degree, a master's in manufacturing engineering. I spent five years in the Navy as a submarine officer, and then I spent 22 years. In corporate America, um, doing uh, basically running factories. I ran uh, eight different manufacturing plants uh, for three global companies, uh, and then eventually I left and started my own business five and a half years ago. So I've done um, the corporate gig, I've done the military gig, and now I've done the entrepreneurial side. So certainly, uh, I'm open to answer any questions you might have on any of those things. But I've had you know more than thirty years' experience of doing leadership. You know, from small teams to large teams. So, uh, hopefully, that uh, that background and insight will be helpful in this discussion. So, what I plan on doing today was give you a little bit of a kind of what's uh, what the new book is all about. Give you a couple stories from the new book, and then I will um, go into a little bit of my, my journey in terms of how I transitioned out of uh, corporate and eventually my own business. But um through uh, the beginning of that process was through uh, me getting let go of a company so uh, and I can tell you a little bit about that for any of you who have gone through that it's a uh not a fun experience it's very emotional and uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about my experience through that. so anyways, uh we'll get started with uh the first slide. so as I said, there's gonna be a lot less words on my slides than pictures so The new book that I've written is called All in the Same Boat, and um, the main theme behind that uh, book is what it was like to lead on a submarine. You know, I spent uh, five years in the Navy, and I made seven deployments on the USS Tennessee as an officer, uh, one of uh, 15 officers on board. We had 140 enlisted, 115 officers. So um, I wanted to get you a feel. You know, it's funny because I didn't really think that what I did was unique. I went in the military like a lot of people did, enjoyed my time. And then I went off into the business world like a lot of people do. But, um, you know, over the years, I realized that, you know, being on a submarine was a very unique environment, a very unique place to learn leadership, a very unique place to have a military experience, Uh, even different from other Navy platforms like like an aircraft carrier or destroyer or what have you mostly because um, of the size. We were very compact, very small, uh, and we also operated alone. So that uh, was a very unique situation. So we were alone hundreds of miles away from any other support vessels, right? And we were were hundreds of feet below the surface. We literally were in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Like, you know, some days I go up to the control room and I look at the chart and I said, holy cow, there's like nothing anywhere, you know, for hundreds of miles. So it's a very, um, it's a very uh, interesting kind of work environment. You know, it's almost like being on, you know, I see these people who go up to the International Space Station. You know, they live there for months on, on, you know, uh, on time. It's a very similar experience. We were locked in uh, this metal tube, and we went and deployed for uh, three months at a time. So we had 150, uh, you know, the crew in a metal tube for three months at a time. So it's a very unique environment. But one of the things that's really important that I learned through this process is that um, in a submarine, it's a very unique environment in in which there's shared responsibility and vulnerability. So every sailor, it didn't matter what your rank was, we were all very important to our mission, right? One sailor, one junior sailor, one junior officer could make a mistake and we would all perish. We were all in it together. And um, so there was this shared responsibility and vulnerability, which is different than anything I ever saw in the civilian world, uh, in corporate America, even as an entrepreneur. Um, You know, when you get to, you know, corporate, you see that not everybody is in it together, right? Everybody has different agendas, right? So they have, um, you know, they're working on their bonus plan, or they're working to get their next promotion, or uh, this department doesn't like this department, right? And marketing doesn't like engineering, engineering doesn't like Sales, you know, there's there's these there's these all these sort of uh, kingdoms, if you will, in corporate America that didn't exist on the submarine. We didn't we didn't have time for that. First of all, we didn't have the space for it, right? We were in we were working in tight quarters, but we also didn't have we couldn't afford that, right? Our enemy was outside the hull, right? The enemy we had a common enemy, and that was number one, you know, thousands of pounds of sea pressure that was trying to get in, right? So our goal was to prevent that from happening. And number two is this was during the Cold War. So we had the Soviets that we were worried about uh, trying to stay away from them, trying to to stay quiet and trying to stay undetected. So we had a common enemy and we worked uh, together. uh, And we knew that the only way we're going to accomplish our mission and get home safely to our families was to work together. And so that was a kind of a unique work environment. So um, let me just give you a little story about, what it was like to work as one team like this. So we had, um, you know, you might not know this, but every time we went on deployment and I did seven deployments uh, with the Tennessee, every time we went on deployment, before we could come home to our families. So we've been gone for three months, right? Before we could actually come see our families, we had to go, we were tested. So we went somewhere in the world, we had to pick up what we called riders. So these were, these were people who would evaluate us. And usually they were senior officers, from some shore command somewhere. We'd go pick them up. They come on our boat for four days and they would just put us through the ringer. And in this particular case, we were going through what's known as an ORS, which is an operational reactor safeguards exam. So this is the hardest test that you can go through. So, so basically they're taking every casualty you can imagine they're gonna run it in the engine room. So reactor scrams, reactor emergencies, fires, flooding, pestilence, you name it, right? So. When we go through those things, it is hard. It is very difficult. We don't sleep for days on end. Um, And in this particular case, this particular horse was much more difficult than every other one, in that the inspectors were very tough on us, and it was very difficult. And one of the things I saw that the uh, the crew was very frustrated because we had trained hard. We were very good at what we did, but these guys were making us redo things. They were they were they kept saying that you know. That that wasn't good enough. Do it again. So we kept rerunning drills over and over to prove ourselves. You know, the crew had been deployed for 90 days. We wanted to get home to our families. These guys were being unreasonable. And there was a lot of frustration, you know, and it's funny because I've been in situations like that in the civilian world in in business. And, you know, at that point, usually the infighting starts, right? Usually the finger pointing start and and there's a lot of negativity and and it was just the opposite uh, that happened on the boat in this particular case. We all rallied together because the enemy became these evaluators, these riders, the guys that were on our boat testing us. And we came together and we, even, you know, even though we were sleep deprived, even though that we wanted to just get home to our families, we all rallied together and we, we killed it. We, we had one of our best uh, horse uh, uh, exams ever through this process. But that's just part of the story. And I tell this story in the books, it's kind of funny. So at at the end of the day, when when all these tests were done, um, we surfaced and we were going to meet up with tugboats that uh, were going to meet us and take these riders off the boat. Well, I was the officer deck, which meant uh, if you look at this picture, you know, you see these, uh, that's the conning tower. And up top is the, uh, what they call the flying bridge. And that's where I would operate the, the submarine from as officer deck and up on the flying bridge. So up on the flying bridge, we just surfaced. And one of the things I noticed right away is that there's a lot of dead flying fish all over the submarine. And, and you might say, well, that's kind of weird, but it's not. When we operated in, in warmer waters, it tends, the flying fish tend to come out of the water thinking we were, you know, a predator. And they would end up laying in, on the flat deck of the submarine. They would actually die. So um, as we steamed into where we were going to meet the tugboats, all these fish were just laying there, you know, kind of rotten in the sun and stinking and all that fun stuff. So I didn't think anything of it because it's something I did, I saw all the time. So we get to the tugs, we, we get these testers, these evaluators, they start loading off, off the boat. And, uh, I don't think anything of it. No problem. We, we, uh, the, the tugs go off. It's no big deal. I, well, I turn over the watch. I go down to the, the wardroom, which is where the officers meet to have, eat, have our lunch and everyone's laughing and everyone's having a good time. And, and it, there's all this celebration. And I'm like, what did I miss? Right. And the first thing they said, well, it happened on your watch. And I said, what do you mean? What did I miss? And he said, Oh, you didn't see it. I said, I didn't, I didn't know. I missed it. And what, what had happened is as they loaded up the bags for these riders that were on the boat, all of their luggage, the sailors and officers that were helping these guys get off the boat, they stuffed all the dead flying fish in these guys' bags. And then they handed them off their bags and smiled and waved as they went off. And, uh, and one of the officers looked at me. and said, "That's not even the best part." I, he said, "I took the underwear I've been wearing for the past four days and put it in there as well." My point is, is that we we were in it together, and there was a common enemy. The enemy was outside the hall. It was outside the four walls. And as I've been a leader in the civilian world, that's one of the big things I always try to try to eliminate that us and them. Right? We're in it together. Uh, it's not marketing, it's not engineering, it's not sales. We're all in this together, right? And the common enemy is our competition, right? We have to we have to outmaneuver the competition. If we want to grow our business, if we want to secure our jobs, and that's a big thing I've done as I've run manufacturing businesses over the years is to try to make sure that we understand that we're in it together and the common enemy is the competition. So just a kind of a quick story about a little bit about what it means to be all in the same boat. You know, the other thing is is that in on a boat, there was no special privileges for officers or senior enlisted. I mean, we, we operated in tight spaces, close together, and um, we ate the same food. We slept in the same size beds. Uh, we wore the same uniforms. Uh, there was no special treatment for, uh, for officers uh, or uh, senior enlisted. So that's something that's always stuck with me as well. So as I've run different businesses, I don't have any special treatment for managers or you don't get special parking spot or a special you know seat at the table. Everybody, you know, it's all you you have to earn it, and everybody's in it together. And I think I think one of the things that I saw in civilian world at least is that there was a lot of us and them. Right? We're physically separated. Most businesses, if you think about it, the 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 managers are in like a office someplace, you know, and they've got you know nice desk, and nice furniture, and maybe a support staff around them. And then you see the manufacturing workers or the office workers or the uh, call center people that are just kind of stuffed together. Not really. They don't really have the the privileges of the senior employees. So we're physically separated and we're treated differently. And that's where those us and them comes in. So as much as I can, I, I I've been able to do it. I've tried to bring those things together in my businesses and say that you know what, there's no no one special in this business. We all have an important role to do role to play. Just like on the boat, the most junior employee can ruin. Could ruin our day. just like that in business, the same thing. The most junior employee could really hurt hurt you in your business if they're not if they feel like they're not treated well or treated with respect or they feel like that they are not part of the overall um, you know business. So a big part of this book is talking about those kind of lessons from, you know, being in this really unique work environment where, you know, three months at a time, locked in a metal tube with one hundred and fifty people. So, That's a little quick little about uh, one story about uh, that uh, time on the boat. So, before I go into another story, I just want to open that up for any questions about you might have about that story or life on a submarine. Yes.
2: Yeah, I actually have a couple. Um, So, you talked about how
3: uh, the commonality of experience in terms of your bunking, your lunches, the lack of physical separation um, is one of the elements that brings a team together. Um, my question is, in a lot of manufacturing and other business spaces, I think that poses additional challenges because of the specialized roles where this person needs to be on a call basically all day, they're going to need a quiet space themselves, the, um, maybe a clean manufacturing space has to be separate from the business offices. How do you bring people together with when, when those sorts of logistical challenges?
1: Yeah, so big, that's a great question. And actually, that's the first thing I realized when I ran my first manufacturing plant is I I saw the separation, like physical separation, like the sales, marketing, accounting were over here, the manufacturing people were over here. We didn't really have any of those common experiences and common places that we met. So um, I started doing, um, I used to to go out on the shop floor every afternoon and walk around, talk to people, get to know the team and what have you. And um, I tell the story in the book is that I saw this tool that was all worn down. It was a mallet. And uh, I, I asked the operator, I said, is that normal? And he said, no, it's not normal. It's just that it's worn down. It's so bad that But we, I said, why didn't you tell anyone about it? He said, well, we don't want to bother you guys. You seem busy in the offices. I don't know really what you do, but you seem busy. And so it kind of got me thinking a lot about what I could do differently. Because I implemented and I, I carried it out through all my plans. Is I had this thing called Fridays on the Floor. And what it was was every manager, uh, the first Friday of every month, uh, every manager would spend four hours on the shop floor in different departments, and it was like, um, you know, that uh, show, undercover, uh, was it undercover boss? I think it was called. It's very similar to that. So we would work uh, on the shop floor within different departments, and we would just, just, you know, we would see it, feel it, touch it, and we would meet the people and really connect. And those Fridays on the floor, I carried over for all the plants that I operated in, and uh that was really one way that we get these common experiences we share we we learn that okay uh the guy on the shop floor is very valuable to this business, and they learn oh uh the plant manager is very valuable to the business we 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 earn we gain mutual respect through that whole process, so yeah, so I think it's those opportunities where you can work to get work together and uh I try to do that as much as I could um you know, and there's there's stories in the book, too, where I even tried to figure out a way to bring the team together. That first plant, I actually went out and we did like team building, but not just the management team. We took the entire plant out and we did team building uh, and where we we trained together, we learned together, we did a ropes course together. It was very interesting, um, really interesting experience because it was like, it was a crazy idea as a young manager, but then I realized I had older employees and we were you know, handing them through ropes and stuff. So, but it was a really good experience, but it helped kind of bring that common experience together. So as much as we can try to bring people together and not have
2: them separated. So I don't know if that answers the question, but a little bit of what we did. That's really good, John. So other questions on that, or I'll just go to the next slide.
0: How did you solve problems in this, like intense close-knit environments where, you know, like... Uh, on a on a sub, it's a little different. You don't you you can't take a walk too far. <laughs> you have a different.
1: So that's interesting. Um, you know, as, uh, as you know, working in companies, um, you know, you can go home at the end of the day. You can have the weekend off. You can um, you know say, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna run out. I need a little time to think. We didn't have that luxury. Uh, leadership was a twenty four seven business. We were uh you were in there with your people there was no time off there was no escape so um yeah so it was really really hard to find that um that time to be alone there was no alone time but you know you you had your rack you had your bed and that's where you sort of sat and thought and you know reflected on the day and that's pretty much all you had um but as far as problem solving one of the things about being locked in a metal tube with 150 other people in this case it was all men Uh, Back then, um, is that you learn to get along with people that you normally would have disagreements with. So you learn to get along with people with different opinions, different backgrounds, different um, could be different political parties, different uh, ideologies, different religions. Um, We had to work with each other to be able to solve problems and get things done. So I would say that my tolerance uh, for others that are different from me became very. I have very good tolerance for that, and it was built up from those days
2: in the Navy.
0: That's great. Thank you, John.
2: Yeah. So let me uh, continue. So um,
1: so let me talk a little bit about this no escape mindset. And I talk about that in the book called Developing a No Escape Mindset. So when you do lock people, and, and I touched on this just a little bit, when you do lock people in a um, in a hull for, for, you know, three months at a time, uh, you learn that you got to get along with people that that you're deployed with, right? So there's, on a submarine, there's no changing out of the crew. So you are stuck, if you will, if that's the right word, you're stuck with the people you deploy with for three months. They lock the tube, that's it. You're there with those 150 people. And one of the things is that, as I mentioned, you learn to work with people that you have complete differences with. And I think that's really important because I think that we have very little tolerance today for people that have different opinions uh, from what ours are. In fact, it seems like society is pushing us towards like, oh, you know, this person's in this group, this person's in this group, we're supposed to hate each other. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, and it sort of goes away, goes to that us and them mentality, We, we had to eliminate it. We had to work together. We had to find common ground if we wanted to accomplish our mission and get home safely. That was really important. So um, so let me tell you, so not only are you stuck with colleagues that you might not uh, agree with or get along with, but you were stuck with employees that you may not get along with or, or may maybe challenging. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, Petty Officer McKinley. Petty Officer McKinley uh, worked for me. I was the reactor controls officer, and he was... A fairly young reactor operator, but he was a very good reactor operator. In fact, I would say he was my best reactor operator. Um, McKinley was short in stature, a smaller guy, and um, he was full of mischief, right? Um, He was always getting himself in trouble. So let me tell you one story. I was about to take over the watch as the um, engineering officer of the watch. That meant I was in charge of the entire uh, engine room. And when I say engine room, there's a nuclear reactor in there. So it's a pretty serious engine room. So uh, I was walking. One of the things we do is we walk the entire engine room and make sure everything is operating properly. We, we, you know, we use all our senses. We listen, we touch, we smell. So we want to make sure everything in the engine room is proper before we take over the watch. As I was walking to the back of the engine room, I was hearing what sounded like a, someone running on a treadmill, which was really unusual because there's no treadmill in the engine room, right? Right. So I kept kind of walking back, trying to investigate, trying to figure out what was going on. And I keep hearing what sounds like sneakers running on a uh, treadmill. And when I got to the back of the engine room, which is a place called Shaft Alley, and this is where the shaft, which is fairly, it's probably about uh, two feet in diameter, maybe maybe, sorry, more like three feet in diameter, the rotating shaft exits the pressure hull and goes out to the back of the, of the submarine. so this large rotating shaft is back there. And when I came to the shaft alley, what I noticed was there was a sailor holding on to two light fixtures and running, physically running on the rotating shaft. And when I looked, I realized it was McKinley. And I, of course, he works for me. He was in my department. And um, I was in shock. Like, why would you do that? You're putting yourself in danger, you're putting the ship in danger. And I was like, McKinley, and he jumps down and he, he's like, Yes, sir, yes, sir. I said, what are you doing well, i said what were you thinking and he said I-, I don't know i was thinking can i do this and he was just that's just the way he was so when we would do for example when we would do field days, so field days were every saturday morning we clean the clean the entire boat and, and when i was a reactor controls officer we had engine room upper level we had to keep that clean well mckinley was the guy that would hide every time he hated clean he hated doing cleanup and he would hide and so Part of my job was trying to find Petty Officer McKinley. And um, I remember the first time this happened, I looked all over the engine room. I kept asking people and I said, he's around here somewhere. And uh, I was walking by and I just had this inkling and I looked up in the overhead, which is filled with valves and ventilation and ductwork and what have you. And I just saw a sliver of a uniform up there. And I realized it was Petty Officer McKinley that stuffed himself up in the overhead uh, to get away from doing field day and cleaning. And I yelled at him, McKinley, get down here. And he came down and, he, you know, I was like, what are you doing? And of course, he said, cleaning, sir. And, and that's just the way his personality was. And uh, of course, there's other stories. One story was uh, on the midwatch, He was my reactor operator. I was the engineer off of the watch. And he was bored and he started taking apart the reactor control panel. And let me tell you what the reactor control panel is. That is the panel that has all the... Everything that operates the nuclear reactor, we have a nuclear operating nuclear reactor at sea, and he starts just taking parts off it. And uh, uh, and I wasn't I wasn't aware of what he's doing because he's sort of in front of me and I can't quite see what he's doing. He was taking parts off and he says, hey, Mr. Rennie, And I said, yeah. And he just handed something back to me. And of course, I instinctively reached out. and It was one of the parts from the reactor control panel. And I was like, McKinley, what are you doing? Uh, what were you thinking? And he said, I was thinking you'd probably react that way. So he just was a mischievous guy. But one of the things I learned really quickly is that when he was bored, he got into trouble, right? And that's he was bored a lot. And one of the things that I knew and I realized is that I had to find ways to keep him from being bored. And he was a fantastic reactor operator. He was also the best troubleshooter I had. So when we had an electronic problem, he was the guy that could solve it. So what I ended up doing is just getting McKinley really busy. So I had him training all of the new reactor operators I had him um I also had him um anytime we had a major maintenance item or anything that went go, went wrong, I always put McKinley on the job and it kept his mind going, it kept him focused, and it kept him out of trouble. And my point being is that I think in in sometimes in companies we think that, oh, we'll just um, you know, this guy's not really working out. We'll get rid of him or transfer him to another department. Having a no-escape mindset means that you work with the people you have with you, you work with the team that you have and you figure out what makes them tick and what, what, where they're, what they're good at and what they're, you know, where their challenges are and finding a way like a puzzle piece to put him in the right place, uh, on, on, in the puzzle and McKinley, I had to figure out how to get him in the right place. And that was a bit of a struggle. Uh, but he was a great sailor. He just, you just had to keep him busy. And I think you probably all have had people like that that you've worked with and, uh, that were challenging personalities. And a no escape mindset means you, you work with them. You don't, you don't write them off. You figure out how to work
2: with them. So uh, before I move on to the next, just open that up for questions about that. John, I, I love that. Um, in Judaism, there's um, uh, a, a, a um, uh, it's called Yetzer Hara, and it's basically your evil tendency. But mm. it's not necessarily about like black and white. It's about how do you use your Yetzer Hara for, as a strength? So it seems like you identified that mischief making and it actually was a strength and you put it to work for your team. Yes. Um, my my son is a ball of yetzer Hara. I have to put him to work continuously. Um, but I, I love the context that you gave. Excellent. I like that. By the way, the picture you see in the picture is called angles and dangles. We would we would operate the the, the boat, and um, we would
1: usually we first deploy. We want to make sure everything was working right, so we would take the ship on very high angles of attack, uh, diving and uh, and and surfacing, and um, it was always a fun um, time because that's when you see when the ship is rigged for sea properly. And I think in the picture you see water spilling onto the deck. Someone didn't do something right. So uh, I don't know where this, I found the picture on the internet, but that's a true look of what life was like on the boat. So
0: John, how as a, as a leader, how much did you need to know of everybody's jobs? I mean, you couldn't possibly be able to do everyone's jobs, but how did you kind of manage that, having to rely on uh, the expertise of the crew? Or did you know almost all of what they did?
1: So that's one of the things that's interesting about um, leadership on in the military, in especially in the navy on a submarine, is that you did have to do everybody's job. You, I mean, you you weren't good at it, but you you had to you had to be qualified on every watch station before you could be responsible enough to uh, move into a position of authority and, and stand watch. So um, you had to know you had to learn everybody's um, everybody's role and responsibility and you had to stand those watches. So every watch that your watch standers are standing, you've stood that watch in your career. What's interesting about that is like, so when you had a commanding officer, so in this case, we had an 06, our captain, um, we knew that he had done our jobs. He had been in our shoes before, and we knew that he had, you know, so he had walked in the same walk that we had, and we walked in the same walk as the people that that reported to us. What that meant is that we had a high level of respect for our commanding officer. So he um, he earned our respect because he, we knew he had been in our shoes. Whereas you think about it, sometimes in businesses you have a you might have a vice president or you might have a, a general manager, or a plant manager, or a department head that maybe never really had uh, didn't really have the skills or experience to be in that role, and it was hard to respect them. And I had trouble personally with that um, in 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 corporate America where somebody get promoted and you're like. Uh, I don't think this guy's never led anyone. How could he be in that role? So uh, that one thing about the military is that every, you're always um, leveling, I guess, the best way. And so you you knew that the people, your peers, everything that you've been through. So there was instant respect for your peers. And your bosses had always had been through what you've been through. So you had a lot of respect for your bosses as well. So, yeah, we did know it. But again, I think I think it's important what I learned as a leader outside military is that, you know, boss doesn't have to have all the right answers, but they have to have the questions and be able to tap into the
2: people. And that's something I've I've really practiced a lot in the civilian world. Great, thank you, John. Okay. Um, I'm gonna go to the next slide.
1: So, You know, one of the one of the sections I talk about in the new book, running your ship like a captain. And so, you know, maybe some people might think the military is a command and control type of setup. And and, and in a way, it somewhat is right. But uh, one of the things that's really unique about a submarine and a submarine crew is that every time you we deployed, we deploy about 20 percent new people. So we almost like a college football team you think about or a college basketball team every year you have players leave. And New players come, and one of the things that the captain had to do is make sure that everybody was qualified and everybody was competent. That that, that not a single uh, sailor or officer could jeopardize the mission or the safety of the crew. So that was a big part of what he did. Uh, in our case, we had I, both my commanding officers were, were male. I was in an all male crew, so it's, I was. I'll say I'll say he a lot, but only because that's what was my personal experience. But. Um, so, you know, he was in, in responsible for making sure that all the new people were trained, but also evaluating and observing, uh, evaluating and developing his best people. And I tell a story on the boat on my second patrol. So between my first patrol and my second patrol, I went to this thing called um, emergency action message training. And so that's the, the, the officers that decode the, the, the missile launch you know codes. So. Um, Anybody ever see uh, Crimson Crimson Tide, the movie Crimson Tide, where they they get into a big argument about, you know, is this message good or not? Well, that's that's based on some reality, although, you know, it's Hollywood, whatever. But anyways, it's based on some reality. But um, so on my second patrol, I was trained on how to break those messages. And I was very eager as a young officer to show my skills. And um, uh, there was the first emergency action message that came in. I ran as fast as I could to get to. Uh, the radio room, so I could be the guy who would break that code because I wanted to show how good I was um, as a young, you know, officer. I wanted to prove my worth to and, and the crew, and um, so we go through this whole routine. It's very, very set up, and it's very there's a special process for it. And um, I I say, you know, I say I say to the captain and the executive officer, this message is authentic. My teammate did the same thing. He says the message is authentic. The executive officer says the message is authentic. And the captain is supposed to say that the message is authentic. But the captain in this case, 06, I was an O. I think I was an 01. So I was uh, like a really junior officer, a butter bar, an ensign. I said, he said, uh, instead of saying uh, the message is authentic, he said, I concur. And um For whatever reason, uh, I decided to question the captain in front of the entire crew on a deployed nuclear submarine in the middle of the Cold War. I said, Captain, that's incorrect. You're supposed to say the message is authentic. And uh, he looked at me. He looked around the rest of the crew. And he announced very loudly, the message is authentic. Said, Mr. Rennie, in my stateroom now. (laughs) And I was like, oh, crap. I mean, so if you look, uh, anybody see uh, Hunt for Red October, that movie? Uh, Yeah, probably the classic movie, right? But Hunt for Red October, the opening sequence said that the three most powerful people in the world are the president of the United States, the president of the Soviet Union or whatever they call him, I don't know if it's president or not, but and the captain of a nuclear submarine with ballistic missiles. And that's who I just questioned uh, on in the con in front of everybody. and. I wanted to get noticed by the Captain, and apparently I did so i don't I don't recommend this, but so I went down to the I went down to the stateroom, I stood at attention, and he proceeded to chew me out. But then one thing he said to me was he said, "You're smart, but you have a lot to learn and he said, "You should spend more time listening to me and less time telling me what to do and that became the cheat code for how I became successful as an officer uh, on that submarine, I realized that. This man had a lot of experience, and I needed to spend time listening and learning from him. And over time, he became a mentor to me, and he kind of took me under his wing. And even though, though we were in the middle of the Cold War, the end of the Cold War, he had a lot of stress on him. But he treated me like um, uh, like a son, and he showed me the ropes. And I learned. I, I never let that happen again. I, and, I, and I became much more an observer and a listener, and over time became a great officer because I, I – I got that cheat code, which was listen more to him and do less talking. And so uh, um, I just the point is, is that uh, as a leader, if if we got a team around us, we've got to we got to develop our team. We have to mentor our team. We need to um, you're going to have some people like me, young, inexperienced, but but, you know, uh, hyped up on caffeine and for some reason telling me that they knew more than the captain or telling the captain that I, I knew more than him. But I think um, you're going to have those kind of people, and you've got to be able to back and say, "Okay, well, this this person's got a lot of energy. How can I tap into that, and how can I develop that person to be, you know, a, a replacement for, for me someday?" So just a little. So the book that I wrote is there's like 50 stories in the book like that. They're short stories, but just to give you an example of of how I developed some of those experiences uh, uh, on the sh- on the ship, and how I brought them into you know uh, the operate uh, the the businesses I ran. Uh, during that time, so uh, any questions on that uh, that little story?
0: That's a good one, John. <laughs>
1: Just making sure I'm I, I'm covering time here. I don't want to go too long. So <laughs>
0: good, really
1: good. Okay, <clears throat> so um, yeah, so don't chew out a captain. That's a good lesson right there. Um, not good for your career. Turns out it was good for my career, but it took a while. OK, so the, the main the main story here is that, you know, and I talk about it in my first book, too, is that leadership is a people business. So if you're uh, if you want to be effective as a leader, you have to be able to um, realize that it's not about the numbers. It's not about the equipment. It's not about the products. It's not about your customers. It's not about anything. It's about your people. It's about your team. It's being able to tap into them um, and learn the best, uh, get the best out of them. Get Make sure that um, you can align their personal uh, goals and mission to the company's goals and mission. And when you can do that, um, you can have an effective organization. So uh, a lot of it uh, just comes right down to leadership is right gets right down to it's about people. So it's, it's about having relationships with people. It's the same thing as having a relationship with your spouse or your children or your brother or your your family. It's about having those relationships and building on those relationships. So, um, yeah, so that's it from 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 uh, kind of stories from the boat. So any other questions on the stories from the boat? Any weird questions about like like I don't know how do we how do we get rid of our waste? I don't know how do we <laughs> <laughs> how we make make water or how we get oxygen? I mean, I can ask you, I can answer some technical questions. How about too.
0: how about the how about at least the first two
1: waste? How do we get rid of waste? Yeah. yeah so. Um, Everything gets pumped overboard, which is kind of hard to believe, um, with a couple exceptions, and that is oil never goes overboard, and plastic never goes overboard. So oil, for uh, two reasons, one, environmental, and two, uh, it can give away the submarine's location. So oil tends to float on the surface, and so that sheen can give away our position. So we would never do that. And that's actually one one thing we always did on the boat, is every time you pumped a tank, I would give the order, I would say, like, pump uh, number one, non-oily. Pump no, oil. pump no oil. So pump no oil was said after every command that you would give because oil was something we'd never pumped overboard. Uh, same thing with plastic. We would actually store it. And if, if any plastic that had been around food, we'd actually put it in the freezers until we got back to port. Uh, obviously, that's environmental reasons. We don't want the plastic to go into the environment. But um, so what's interesting is that when I say everything goes overboard, I'm talking about waste tanks as well. So the sailor's waste goes in these tanks and they get pumped overboard. Well, the, I probably shouldn't tell the story, but we're already down this, so we' John, you did it. I'm going to blame you. So uh, the shrimp would come around. whenever we pumped these waste tanks, the shrimp would come around and eat whatever came out of the boat. And so I didn't eat shrimp for years uh, after yeah. leaving the submarine force because I just something weird about it, just couldn't do it. But um, yeah, so all that stuff gets pumped overboard. We make our own uh, water uh, using seawater. We would you know, distill that into fresh water. And we made our own oxygen by using electrolysis. And we would take uh, H2O and separate the H and the uh, O. And we would keep the O and we would pump out the H. Um, so that's how we made uh, oxygen. And that's how we lived on board. We were only limited by our fuel could last 15 years. Nuclear fuel would last 15 years. Uh, but we were only limited to uh, toilet paper and coffee. So, if we ran out of those things, we
2: had to pull in. So,
0: <laughs> that's outstanding. Keep rolling, John. This is good.
2: Okay, we'll keep going.
1: So, let me tell you a little bit about um, my journey uh, in career. My career journey. Uh, I I mentioned I did twenty two years in corporate America. I came out of the military, went right into corporate. I was promoted, continuously promoted, moved into management roles, move into vice president, uh, general manager, plant managers. I ran eight different manufacturing plants um, during that time. <clears throat> uh, but I, I found myself at one point in my career that I was let go. So uh, we had a change in management. We had a, a change in direction of the company. And I was a victim of that. And I found myself out of work. And that was a pretty tough thing for me because all of my career both in the military and in coming to corporate America had always been you know moved up the you know up the food chain and always been promoted. And then when I got kind of moved to the side and let go, that was a pretty tough thing for me. So I don't know anybody on the call that have been through that kind of situation, but it is tough on you uh, emotionally. And um that's where I met John. We worked together to to get back to work. So I um but I would tell you this is that um One of the biggest things I noticed is that I had, um, you know, I had, um, I was, I was like a fish out of water, right? Everybody knew who I was in the corporation, but once I left, nobody knew who I was. Uh, I, I was a nobody, right? And so I didn't have any presence outside my company, and that was a little bit scary when this happened to me. The other thing I would say is my network was. you know, I was fat, dumb, and happy in my company. I was a king of my castle. Why would I work on my, uh, why would I keep my network fresh? I was really good at what I did. I'm just gonna keep getting promoted. Life is good, right? So I didn't keep my network fresh. The other thing is like my LinkedIn wasn't updated. I hadn't updated it in years. I didn't care. I had a great job. I was I was making money, right? I was, I was getting promoted. Um, and the other thing is my job, the job that I had was my only source of income. That's all I had was that job. So when, you know, the rug got pulled out from under me, it was like, holy cow. Like I, I was not prepared for it. It, it, you know, it's funny. Cause I always said to myself, you know, like a fighter uh, pilot, you know, they, they have the, I don't know what they call that thing. I'm not a fire pilot, but they, they would you know, pull it to punch out of the, uh, of the uh, plane. If in case of emergency, I always thought I'd be smart enough to figure out when that was happening and pull out before something bad happened. But Unfortunately, I, I wasn't, uh, I had no idea this was happening behind me. And then all of a sudden I was out of work. So I found myself in a position where uh, I had, nobody knew who I was and I had a stale network, bad, bad LinkedIn profile. Uh, and all I had was my job. So I had nothing. So, you know, I met John and, and one of the things that I would say, I credit John for this. He said, you know, um, he mentioned to me that at the time LinkedIn had just added like long form pros. You could write like long articles in LinkedIn. And he said, you ought to write about what you know about. And I don't know if you remember that, John, but you said that. And I, and, and it was like, I've been writing for years in technical articles for the companies I worked for being an engineer and what have you. I'd wrote, I've been writing for years, all sorts of like, I've even done some, so we, had, I ran the Twitter account. I had, I, so I did, I had social networking, uh, you know, street cred, but I was doing it for someone else, but yet I had all these skills that I weren't applying to myself. So that's why I began writing. Um, I, I, I started my own website. That's that's my name, johnsrenny.com. I started writing articles. I wrote articles for various websites. Um, I, I just started you know, writing blog posts, articles, um, and uh, then it started getting to, you know, become sort of a leadership expert uh, in, in the space, you know, gain, I, mean, I think I have 15,000, I think it's, yeah, almost 16,000 followers now on Twitter. Um, you know, my, my articles are shared all over the world. And um, yeah, I became something outside of work, right? I, I built up a brand for myself. Um, I run, uh, someone just mentioned I have a good podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. Oh, hey, Sherry. I didn't even know you are on there. So I know Sherry. Um, no, so um, yeah, I ran I ran I run a couple of podcasts now that I do. I write uh, you know, write articles, and then I just started to write decide to take some of these ideas and put it into books. So I started writing books at that point. So and now I now I speak on leadership, I write on leadership, and I'm kind of known outside of my manufacturing life, my manufacturing boss as something other than that. So that was a big part of what I did for that transition. Um, and I, always, I would credit John to, to, get me to get me to start writing and start talking about what I know. So again, I would encourage if, if you're not doing that, it's, it's great. So um, uh, Jeff was asking, is it deep leadership? Yeah, that's my podcast, deep leadership. I also run another one called X factor, which is, I'll tell you about that one. That's, that's a little crazy. Me and another, another business leader. And we, we, we uh, talk about things kind of a little more funny. It's more of a more entertainment than it is education. But so anyways, one of the other things I did was I made looking for a job, my full-time job. And one of the things I used is a, I used mind mapping software, which you may be familiar with. Um, I use a program called simple mind. And this was just an example. I can't, couldn't find my original file, but I kind of made up a little example of what it looked like. was, But I I, I targeted, like, well, what, do, what do I want to do? How do I want to, you know, where do I want to go next? And so, like, I had companies inside my industry, in, uh, outside of Raleigh, inside of Raleigh, and then companies outside my industry, inside of Raleigh. And I started putting, like, a, who are the companies I could possibly work for? Who are the people that I know? And who are the people that I know or I don't know, but somebody else might be connected to them how do I meet up with those people and this became like my map of what I would do every morning so every morning I would make sure that I would keep this mind map up to date and as i made those connections and i and i would i would check off okay I talked to this person I had lunch with this person i know this person this person connected with this person so it, it became my full time job almost like um I think of one of those um, crazy movies where this the conspiracy theory guy trying to find like the answer. It was a little bit like that. It's just trying to plug together who, who, where, what I could possibly do, um, and where I could. And and, and you know, and, and I'm sure John has said this to you before, is that your your best opportunity is going to come from somebody in your network or somebody that knows somebody in your network. And that's what happened to me. So I once I was out of uh, corporate America, I went back into corporate America for three years um to because that's what i was comfortable in doing that's what i thought i wanted to do but uh, but going back to corporate america really told me that it was time to get out and so uh, going back into working for another global company said you know what 22 years i'm done and that's when i decided to become an entrepreneur and it was my network by the way that um got me my funding and got us started with our manufacturing business and um it was through a vendor that I had worked with that wanted to do something uh, in North Carolina. And so it kind of worked together. So the power of your network is really important. The power of your your person, who you are as a person, uh, your how much visibility you have um, outside of your your work is really important. So, you know, just some of the lessons I learned was, you know, obviously making, trying to find a job, your full-time job. That's what it was for me. Uh building that presence is really important. I mean, you can go get a, your own website, um, you know, with your name.com. It's it's uh, pretty easy to do, pretty easy to use, um, you know, to, to set up a, a basic website to put, you know, put there, put your stuff on there so people can find it. Social media is easy to to grow that. Write about what you know about. I think that's really important. Uh, build, maintain, and utilize your network. So don't let your network go stale like I did. Don't let your LinkedIn go stale like I did. You know, make sure you have a professional headshot. Um, I like the idea of using the mind map to visualize your 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 mission, your job uh, search. The other thing I did was I reached out to all my connections and said, hey, please give me some recommendations. Um, and yeah, we were able to do that. We got a lot, of, a lot of good recommendations on my LinkedIn, which certainly helps. And the other thing was... how can you create multiple streams of income so you're not just dependent on that one job? And that's something I learned over this is like, wow, I had all my eggs in that basket. (laughs) That basket went away. So, um, you know, and the other thing is, um, you know, consider smaller companies. Like I eventually took an entrepreneurial path. Um, I think you can gain a lot from the smaller companies and and, and trying to do something on your own. And the other thing I would say is really, really important is uh, uh, staying physically, mentally, spiritually, uh, strong because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough battle. You're, you're going through some tough emotions. Uh, and, uh, so it's hard to, hard to be in that situation. So you gotta, yeah, you gotta make sure you maintain that all. So, but that's it. So that's it for my story, my journey. And, um, you know, if you want to reach out to me, um, there is my connections. I, again, I have two books out there. You go to dot and find those two books. You can go to my two, I have two podcasts, By the way, um, Deep Deep Leadership is my main podcast. I also have the X Factor podcast. uh, And those are kind of, that's a little more fun. That's, I tell people, that's where I let my hair down, what little hair I have. So, Um, and yeah, so there's my connections up there. And I did put my um, link to my uh, LinkedIn profile on the chat. So if you can connect with me there. So, um, yeah, so that's it. I'm going to leave it open for questions now. Make sure I have enough time here
0: we got time for a few questions. John, thank you so much. It's been really inspiring to see all this and to keep up with your brand. Um, <clears> That's just fantastic advice today. Uh, go ahead and unmute and ask a question. I'll start. Uh, if you are looking for a company, what lets you know your, what are some of the elements that you see that you, you would look for now as someone going after a job? Sometimes we think we just have to take the next job, but what do you look for in leadership? Some of the concepts that you, you covered today?
1: Yeah, you know, I'd I'd like. I I really think it's important to look at your boss. Like, who who are you going to be working for, and what is the company like? You know, what do they what do they stand for? What are their principles? I think that's really important. Um, I, you know, at one point in my time, I was considering another job before I went uh, back to ABB, and um, I I met with the owner. I was a small company. and met with the owner, and I could tell like it was this guy was going to be a micromanager, right? You know, he knew every he knew the position of every valve in this manufacturing plant, and he's like, oh. Goes, I'm going to move to this role and you're going to take over this role. And I'm like, ooh, you know, working for somebody that knows everything about your job, that's kind of rough. So, you know, watch out for those like red flags that this pipe, this guy might be a micromanager, this, might, this guy might be an absent manager, or this, this person is, you know, just in it for themselves, not in it for the company. So some of those things that, that are in the book, yeah, absolutely, you want to look for.
0: And what are a couple of favorite questions that you like to ask or be asked in an interview?
1: Well, I'm really curious to know what difficulties have you overcome when I'm looking to a candidate. I I really want to know like your toughest story and how you overcame it, because I think that tells you a little bit about that person. I I really do like to hire the people that have been through some um, difficult times because they have what they you know, they have grit, they have endurance they can withstand when things get tough and i'm looking for those people that have a
2: story of where they uh you know struggled and they overcame that struggle that's great okay let's open it up a couple more questions
0: ted what do you think yeah i had a question oh, sorry alex. no go ahead alex
2: okay
3: um I had a question about uh you mentioned that part of the camaraderie that was built up on the sub was knowing that you had a lot of common experiences and common struggles, in that uh your superior officers had once been exactly who you were doing the same thing you were. Um, and it kind of brought to mind there's um, I think a difficulty with hiring. Do I promote someone that I have within the company that I think has the skill set? Or do I hire some extremely qualified candidate that I can find from outside of the company? Sometimes it's not a a clean black and white decision. Uh, You know, sometimes you don't have anyone with experience in the company and you need someone from outside, but it's not always so simple. So I was wondering if you had thoughts on how you make that distinction.
1: Yeah, I mean, in general, I'd prefer to promote from within if I can. Uh, But I also think that I want to see... When I have a team that's reporting me, I want to see a really diverse team. And what I mean by that is that, uh, that I have some new employees, like new to our to our company. I have some that are experienced employees. I have I have all walks of you know life and backgrounds. But I really want to make sure that I have we don't we're not all cut from the same cloth. I don't want everyone who's been promoted from within and every or everybody that came from the outside. I think both of those are dangerous. I've seen. I've seen things go wrong with both those scenarios. So I want to have a good mix of that experienced people that have been promoted from within and then some from the outside. You need those outside fresh ideas sometimes uh, to to go. So I don't know that I have the right answer for it, but I do like to have a good blend of that in the team as much as possible.
0: Excellent, excellent. All right, one more question. We got time for one
2: more. I have a question.
0: Donnie, go. Donnie, do me a favor. You're you're cutting out a little bit.
2: my question. I hear me. Uh oh. You're gonna have uh, Donnie. You're gonna have to yes. write it. No problem. I'll write it in the message. Oh, I hear write it. It's just your sound is going away. Uh-huh. Not working. Write it. Oh, my sound. Is it still going? Is it still bad? No, go ask.
0: This is Zoom, people. Yes,
2: can you hear me? Okay, can you hear me now? Ask your question. OK, so my question is, during your transition period, what was the time that it took you to, um, you know, really come to where you are right now? And how do you manage your time with the podcasts and, uh, you know, speaking engagements? So the time and then how do you manage your time? Thanks, Shani. It,
1: it took me three months to, to get back into corporate world after I was uh, let go from one company. It took me three months to get into a new role at a new company new global company uh kind of equivalent uh, role um so but that it really took me 3 years there to realize i wasn't happy in corporate life and i needed to move on so that's when i made the transition to being an entrepreneur and that's been a 5 year long journey so how do i manage my time i don't sleep very much which is probably not good but i do um i get up at 4am every morning and um i write from 4 to 5 i work out from 5 to 6 Uh, I get ready from work for six to seven, then I'm at work at eight (laughs) and I come home and uh, I have dinner and then I write until uh, I go to bed. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, it's making a priority. We do spend a lot of our time being entertained and consuming content. So I always to myself, I'm trying to create more content than I consume. consume. So that's been my goal um, since I've been on this journey.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Shani. John, there's a life lesson right there for a lot of us.
1: Would, uh, create more than you, can, than you consume? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's really important. I think that's because uh, it's easy to scroll through Twitter or, you know, keep watching YouTube videos or, you know, Netflix, you know, one more episode. <laughs> so it's easy to do that. So I try to I I try to have like a timer in my head, like, okay, well, I want 10 minutes of content. I got to create 15 minutes, you know, so.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, all right. One last question. Glad we got that in, Johnny. Smith, did you like a lot this stuff? Yeah, good. Anybody else want to comment? Ted, as a military man, what do you think of this? Well, I found it very interesting, John. And since you uh, made the mistake of calling on me. I'm going to ask John to give us uh, off the cuff what he would do. This is a true situation that happened. A friend of mine was a submariner, was the second submarine to go under the polar ice caps. While they were up there, they found some open water and surfaced. Had guard duty at night. It snowed heavily all night long.
2: He made a snowman. How would you handle that situation? (laughs)
1: I would, I would, well, see, I'm the wrong guy to ask. Cause I have always been a little bit of a rebel. So I would salute that guy and, and shake his hand and get a picture with him. So, um, because, uh, in the book, I tell a story of how my last watch as an, as my last watch on the Tennessee, when I was leaving the Navy, I knew I was leaving the Navy. I had spent about a month in, uh, sewing a giant pirate's flag of which I took the American flag down, flew a pirate's flag for six hours. My last watch, um, <laughs> Just to say I did it. So I would have loved that guy.
0: (laughs) I like it. I like it. Here's what his commander did. They had a burial at sea. They said, We have a man on board. It's a snowman. He's dead. We need to bury him. (laughs) So I had a burial at sea and an educational experience for everybody on the sub.
1: I love it. That's great that's another way to do it too
0: <laughs> hey y'all let's let's follow join and support john and anyone who gets his book let me know a special donation in your name this month and uh, I'd love you to review it write a nice five star review for John uh, we we love our our clients and and to see them continue to thrive is just part mm-hmm. of our dream here so thank you John for this morning we're going to continue to support you and let us know where you're going to be and how to follow you I think you already did. And uh, we're going to show up at your book signings and we're, we're going to be there for you. Thank you so much. John. Good.
1: good deal. we got a book signing in July. It's going to happen up in Wake Forest. We'll, I'll, I'll let you know.
0: Okay, wonderful. Everybody, let's give them a hand. I don't know what you do on a sub. You don't want to be too loud, right?
1: No, you got to be quiet. Okay.
0: <laughs> quiet, quiet. All right. Very good. Great to have you. Appreciate you, John. Thanks, y'all.
1: Take care, everybody.